Well, this morning, I have entitled my message, Sanctified, Set Free, and Set Apart. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning, Lord, for your word, that it is truth, that it is active, it is alive, and it is for now. And Lord God, I pray that it would do what it is meant to do, Lord, is meant to correct us, to train us, to teach us, to equip us, to guide us. Lord, let it comfort us. Let it change us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Sanctified, set free, and set apart. I could wrap all of that up in one word. Holy. Holy. You know, it's actually something that you and I are meant to go for. It is not religious. It is not Old Testament. It is godly. It is holiness. It is purity, it is sanctification, and it is something that you and I are meant to desire in our life, not only for what it will do for us, the freedom that it will bring, the blessing that it will bring, but also for what it will do for those around you. Can you guys just pull me down, please? Sometimes I get loud. Thank you. Amazing. And I can throw my voice nice and deep, so just pull me down a little bit too. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, you know, back in the 1980s, they invented holy jeans, ripped jeans. They've been around for that long and still people can't get used to them, including me. Can't stand them. I go shopping for jeans and I'm like, why? Why would I buy less for the same price? If there's going to be rips in them, discount them at least. It's like unbelievable. Who's with me? Like, I cannot, thank you, so many of you, the rest of you, pray for you in the altar call at the end of this morning. But oh my gosh, it's like, if I wanted to see that part of your thigh, I, no, I probably just would never want to see that part of your thigh. Don't wear ripped jeans. Unbelievable. Oh, man, the dad jokes. I can think of them all day long with ripped jeans. It's hilarious. It's like, you know, you're getting dressed in the morning and uh, dad comes out. Oh, you're off to church, are you? <laughs> got your holy jeans on today, your, your holy pants. <laughs> oh, dear. Hope you got them for a discount. Did you buy them like that? <laughs> oh, I hope you kept the receipt. Uh, There's a hole in your pants, (laughs) if you didn't notice. You'll have a pair of shorts by summer, I'm sure of it. Or my personal favourite, did it hurt? (laughs) Oh dear, that's that's my ultimate favourite. It's the best dad joke right there, did it hurt? I love it. Oh dear, well, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is a uh, God designed lifestyle that he wants you and I to engage in. I want to read to you this morning uh, Isaiah 57. It's an incredible passage. And uh, when I was reading and preparing, I was like, wow, this, it's pretty confrontational. But then God, as he always does, he wraps it up with such incredible promises and truths and I love that it's such a symbol, even of what Pastor Nikki said this morning, of the, of the cross of Calvary, the cross, that, that statement for all time that God has dealt with what we could never even hope to deal with. And it starts like this, it says, good people pass away. The godly often die before their time, but no one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to understand that God is protecting them from the evil to come. For those who follow godly paths will rest 
in peace when they die. And it goes on and it talks about idolatrous worship. Now, I know you and I don't, uh, well, I hope you don't, uh, have graven images and statues and bow down to them and kiss their feet and rub their bellies and whatever else goes on with idol worship. But nowadays, there is a lot of idolatrous worship. And it's anything that takes the place of the king in your life. Anything that has a higher priority in your home than the king of all kings, it is idol worship. For some of us, it is finance, it is money, it is home, it is status, it is our career, it is our job. For some of us, it is our family. For some of us, it is achievements that we've done. For some of us, it is simply desires that we have not yet achieved, but they are desires that we are worshipping and chasing after. And Isaiah goes on, you worship your idols with great passion. Beneath the oaks and under every green tree, you sacrifice your children in the valleys, among the jagged rocks and the cliffs. Your gods are the smooth stones in the valleys. You worship them with liquid offerings and grain offerings. They, not I, are your inheritance." Do you think all this makes me happy? You've committed adultery on every high mountain and there you have worshipped idols and have been unfaithful to me. You've put pagan symbols on your doorposts and behind your doors and you have left me and have climbed into bed with these detestable gods. You have committed yourselves to them. You have loved to look at their naked bodies. You have gone to Molech with olive oil and many perfumes, sending your agents far and wide Even to the world of the dead, you grew weary in your search, but you never gave up. Desire gave you renewed strength, and you did not grow weary. Are you afraid of these idols? Do they terrify you? Is that why you have lied to me and forgotten me and my words? Is it because of my long silence that you no longer fear me? Now I will expose your so-called good deeds. None of them will help you. Let's see if your idols can save you when you cry out to them for help. Why, a puff of wind can knock them down. If you just breathe on them, they fall over. But whoever trusts in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And then God does what only God can do. God says, rebuild the road. Clear away the rocks and stones so my people can return from captivity. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Let me repeat that verse again because I love the language in this. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble. You might have tried something else and you might be trying something else, but God says, I can restore the crushed spirit of the humble. Maybe even you feel crushed this morning. God can restore the crushed spirit of the humble. And then he says, I revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. I will not fight against you forever. I will not always be angry. If I were, all people would pass away. All the souls I have made. I was angry, so I punished these greedy people. I withdrew from them, but they kept going on their own stubborn way. I've seen what they do, but I will heal them anyway. Isn't that just incredible? I will heal them anyway. I will lead them. 
I will comfort those who mourn, bringing words of praise to their lips. May they have abundant peace. And God just starts to blessing upon blessing upon blessing. May they have abundant peace, both near and far, says the Lord who heals them. Those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Worship God on Sunday and on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Worship God every day of the week. You and I have been called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. On Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday to worship Him. To in the morning to lift our lips in praise to the King of Kings, to worship Him, to exalt Him in our workplace, to exalt Him in our lives. He is the one thing that matters the most in all our lives. And He's the best thing. The only way to live a truly blessed life, which is the best life possible, is to live chasing after God. Every great thing grace and mercy and abundance upon abundance is found in Jesus Christ. This morning I got a bit of a two-part sermon thought today. Firstly, what the world offers and its reward, well, the result is bad. World is bad. What the Word offers and His reward, the result is good. The Word is good. Jesus is good. Everything about your relationship with God is good. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions this morning. We're going to unpack them. Number one, what have you allowed into your house? Have a think. Ask the Holy Spirit this morning to make you aware of things that might be right now physically in your home, as the Scriptures said on the doorposts, behind the doors, on the walls. What is in your house, what have you allowed in your house that maybe should not be there? Maybe it's not a permanent fixture, but maybe it's something that you welcome into your home regularly. The things of this world, church, will not last. They cannot help you in time of need. You cannot lean on them. They carry no ability to bring strength into your world. If you lean on them, you will fall because they are nothing. They have no ability to support you, to help you carry the things of life. They cannot save you. They cannot defend you. They cannot protect you. They cannot teach you. They cannot guide you. And they cannot withstand the issues of life. In fact, they do the very opposite in each of those scenarios. So I want to encourage you this morning to not only, the Scriptures say, purify your hearts, you sinners, and cleanse your hands, for God is holy. Purify your homes. Cleanse your homes. Decide what type of sanctuary you want to live in. Parents, decide what type of home you want to raise your children in. Decide what type of home you want to lead in. Put aside flesh cravings. How? Fast and pray. It's something that I know God is calling me to personally to dive into a time of real deep prayer and fasting. And I know what that means. 
I know it means, firstly, that the battle is going to intensify. Because before there's victory, there's always the battle. But I already know that the battle is the Lord's, so the victory is ours. Amen? If you have flesh cravings that you are struggling with, fast and pray. Tell your flesh to submit to you, to the will of God in your life. Don't allow it to rule you. If you are feeling ruled by something, like you give in, like you feel like you can't, fast and pray. Let your spirit rise up in times like that. Don't engage in what will require the blood to cleanse you from. If you think, well, I need the blood of Jesus to wash this away from my life, then don't engage. Run, disengage. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is where, the, where your God dwells within you. Let Jesus dwell in holiness. Let Jesus dwell in holiness. Let Him be excited about living in side of you. Disengage with the way of the flesh. It's not good for you. The instantaneous gratification is never enough to overrule the long-term issues. That's why God commands us to be holy. He forgives you, but He doesn't want it for you. You know, God doesn't actually want to have to forgive you. He will, and He does, and He loves to because it brings you into freedom. But I want to encourage you, don't slip back. Run, run. Second question this morning, what have you allowed into his house? Let's take it from physical environment to personal right now. You see, because God chooses to dwell, not just among us, but within us. You know, the world does a very good job of saying that your body is yours and you can do to it what you want to do to it, that what I do to my body only affects me. It's just, it's just not true. Because first and foremost, it's not your body at all. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ, who bought it with the highest of price. And secondly, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your partner. Scriptures say that you give authority over your body to your partner. So it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your partner. And also it belongs to your children. It belongs to the future you. So you can do stuff to your body but it's not only affecting you, it will affect your future partner if you're not married yet. It does affect your partner if you are married and it does affect the future you. It affects who you will become and the family that you will have. God chooses to dwell within us. We carry the very presence of God. So ask yourself, what else are you carrying? What else is in there that shouldn't be in there? What needs to be purged from your body, his house, just like it might need to be purged from your house. Does it sit well with your spirit? Is it something that you would want Jesus to have to live in? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 to 20 says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18, it says this, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them, and walk among them. I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among believers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It goes on in the very next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Because we have these promises. What promises? These promises that He will live in us and walk with us. And He will be our God and we will be His people. And He will be our Father. And we will be His sons and daughters. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. We must honor God with our bodies. You know, living in in, uh, holy matrimony is the same principle that God also has for you and I, church, in all dealings of life. I want to encourage you, if you're a business owner or you want to get into business in the future, to think very wisely if you are going to partner with someone who is an unbeliever, because the Bible tells us not to. How can light and darkness agree? You'll always be tempted by the darkness of that person joining to the darkness that's still within us, the sin that we carry, as Romans puts it. The sin that we struggle with, the sin that wages war against our very soul. How can you conquer that if it's something that you have bound yourself to in partnership? Think about the partnerships that you have in life. I'm not talking about working for unbelievers because God says that He will in fact take from the sheep. Sorry, take take from the sheep. Oh my goodness. Take from the goats and give it to the sheep. That's what God says. He will take from the goats, the unbelievers, and He will take it from them and He will give it to the sheep. He will give it to the believers. So why would you want to be partnered with someone that God's going to take from and give it to you anyway? Partner with a believer. Not talking about working for people. Jesus taught us how to work for people and to always work as if we are working unto the Lord. And if we're asked to go a mile, go to, he gave us principles of how to work in the world. I'm talking about a level of partnership of maybe something, for example, like business ownership. It's just like marriage. Lightness and darkness cannot be intertwined. The Bible says that we must honor God with our bodies. It also says you must be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to jump over now into 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 13 to 19. It says this, Peter said, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control got a lot of Bible this morning. He loves a good dose of the Bible sometimes. Get into it. Let's go. All right. So, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the Scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. 
So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Don't slip back. You must be holy for I am holy. I love how Peter starts this passage. Prepare your minds. Prepare your minds. Get ready. Gird up the loins for those of you a little more mature in the room. Get ready. I love it. I mean, we know what Peter went through. We know what he did. And we know what he didn't do when he was meant to do it. Like we, we can often, I know I do, really uh, affiliate strongly with Peter. Like, I love that Peter was one of the 12. I love that there's a lot about Peter in the Gospels. And I love what he says here. It's practical. Prepare your minds. Get ready. Exercise self-control. Like, he's getting really real here. He's not beating around the bush. He's saying, hey, come on, get ready. Prepare your minds. This is something you're going to have to be serious about. And then he makes such a profound statement. One that we know he obviously most definitely had to experience himself. And he says, put all your hope in the salvation of Jesus that is going to come. Why? You must be holy because God is holy. Uh, Many years ago, uh, when I was working as building certifier, we had to uh, do this thing called CPD, Continued Professional Development. So to maintain my license, uh, every year I had to meet a minimum of 20 hours CPD, uh, but over a triennium, so three years, I had to reach 90. So 30 hours approximately every year of continued professional development to make sure that I was staying up to date with all the building codes, staying up to date with town planning, staying up to date with the latest insurance issues around the construction industry and just being industry leaders and not falling behind. And one of those... Uh, seminars that our bosses uh, called in because we'd constantly have this argument with different builders over the phone about the word shall. And uh, it's a bit of an old English word, really, but it's in all of our laws and it's in the building codes. And it says, you shall do this. And they're like, it just says shall, so I don't have to. It's like, shall is a suggestion. And we're like, "Eh, not really. Like, shall is shall. Like, you shall do it. It's like, there's no other way around it. You shall do it. It's quite old English, is it? Like, we don't walk around going, uh, you shall do this and I shall do that. It's not how we speak anymore. And so we had a guy come in, an English teacher, and literally for a whole hour, just so we could write one hour of CPD anyway, but for a whole hour taught us that shall equals must. Went back to all the original language and showed us and everything. And so we were armed, literally, for a whole hour of what to say to all of our clients that would tell us that shall is a suggestion and I don't have to do it. And so we were now ready to say, no, it is, it is must. You must do it. It's what, it's what it says. You have to. Otherwise, we can't sign it off. So you'll have to go find another certifier if you don't want our signature on the bottom of your plans. It's the same here. It's a legal term. You must. You shall. We have to be holy. You must be holy because God is holy. It's a command. Commands like this are strong. They don't fill up every page of the Bible. When we read the word must, it's something to be heeded to. It's something to recognize and take stock of because it's something that God 
is requiring of us. It is something He is going to look over our life and decide on things. He then backs it up with three reasons. Number one, you're called. He said, why? Because He chose you. Number two, He then says, for the Scriptures say, it is written, it's a command of God. It's not just something that Peter was saying for the sake of saying it. And number three, it's from His example. God says, you must be holy because because I am holy. God is asking us to come into a union with Him of holiness, and it's not for Him. God cannot benefit from you and I. He is perfect and complete. All of the commands of God, all of the rules of Christianity are for you and for me. We benefit, and that's what God desires for us. A couple of lessons that we can learn from this, four lessons today. Number one, the grace of God in calling a sinner is a powerful appointment to holiness. It's favor. And it's the greatest of favor to be called by God, by divine grace, out of sin and misery into a position of all the blessings of the new covenant that you and I have, the greatest of favors. But the greatest of favors always carry great obligations they enable and require us in this instance to be holy. Number two, complete holiness is the desire and duty of every Christian. It must, for the extent of it, be universal. We must be holy and be so in all manner of conversation, in all of our church affairs, our community affairs, in every condition, prosperous or the opposite, towards all people, friends and enemies in all our relationships and business, and still regardless of what others might be doing around us, you and I are required to be holy. For the pattern of it, we must be holy because God is holy. There is example to follow. We have to imitate Him. How do we be holy? We imitate God, and we're going to jump into that in just a moment. We can never equal Him. He is perfectly, unchangeably, and eternally holy, but we should aspire to such a state. Who Jesus was and is, is the highest degree of holiness that you and I can attain to. Just look at how Jesus lived in the Gospels. That's your goal. And it's not, it's not something that's weird and wacky and crazily religious or out of this world. You look at the Gospels, it's attainable. And it's actually something that that is desirable. The way Jesus lived in the Gospels is something that you'd be proud to be known by. If you lived like Jesus lived in the Gospels, people around you would be like, I mean, I want to hang around with him more often. I want to hang around with her more often. Think of who he was, and that's who we are required to be. Being holy is not difficult. It's something to continually try to be. Number three. The written Word of God is the undisputable rule of a Christian's life. It's the truth. You can't question it. It's what we have to live by. And if we can't agree that the Word is truth, then we might as well not agree on any of it. Let's give up. But the Word is truth. And Jesus said that He is the Word and that He is truth. By the rule of the Word, we are commanded to be holy in every way. And lastly, 
from our lessons from Peter's statements. Number four, the Old Testament commands are to be studied and obeyed in the times of the New Testament. You know, sometimes people uh, don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament because they think it's, it's, it's been done. It's come and gone and the New Testament is where it's all at. But no, the Old Testament has culminated in Christ and now we live from that place. Christ did not come to remove it. He came to complete it, he said. The Old Testament is not irrelevant in our lives. Peter the Apostle, by virtue of a command that Moses gave and delivered several times to the people of Israel in his letter in New Testament Scripture, requires us as Christians to live lives that are holy. This includes you and me. It's not just for the disciples. It wasn't for the group of people that received that letter from Peter. It is a letter to you and I. So holy, what does holy mean? How do we define it? Well, uh, it is pronounced like this in its original language, hagios, hagios. So give yourself a little hug this morning and you can say I'm holy. It's very good. Biblically, it is literally always rendered sanctification, a separation unto God, pure physically and morally, blameless and consecrated, sanctified, consecrated, and dedicated or separated from the world and worldliness. I have a little illustration for us this morning to give some additional context around this. Purity in your private world. When a person becomes a Christian, they usually undergo some radical life changes, especially if they have had an immoral background. Through the first steps of spiritual growth and self-denial, they get rid of the large obvious sins. But it's sad to say that many believers stop there and they don't go on to eliminate the little sins that clutter the landscape of their lives. Gordon MacDonald, in his book, Ordering Your Private World, tells of this experience in his own life that illustrates it at an even deeper level. And I just want you to picture this. He said this, some years ago when Gail and I bought the old abandoned New Hampshire farm we now call Peace Ledge, we found the site where we wished to build our country home and it was strewn with rocks and boulders. It was going to take a lot of hard work to clear it all out. The first phase of the clearing process was easy. The big boulders went fast. And when they were gone, we began to see that there were a lot of smaller rocks that also had to go too. But when we had cleared the side of the boulders and the rocks, we then noticed all the stones and pebbles we had not seen before. This was a much harder and more tedious work, but we stuck to it and there came the day when the soil was ready for planting grass. Church, sometimes we can allow sin or more particularly a sin to win us over. We start to give in to it. Sometimes it's the small things in life that end up becoming the big things yet again. It's like the old saying, you know, don't leave a little pebble in your shoe. Don't leave a little stone. Because at the end of the walk, <laughs> you're going to regret having left that stone in your shoe. You know, sometimes we can submit to the strongholds and we think, oh, it's just part of us. It's, it's because of this or it's because of that or it's just always been like this. It's always been like that. 
But it's not true and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a part of your story. You can fight it and you can keep fighting it. You know, I believe that the older you get, the more you need to fight. Don't get comfortable with your sin. Let it continually bring you back to the cross. You don't need to focus on it, but you do need to fight it. And you can fight it by getting stuck into focusing on the real purpose for your life. Do what God has asked you to do. The more you do what God has asked you to do, the more you be who God has asked you to be, I can promise you by default, you will struggle less with the issues of your flesh. Sanctification is this, to make holy, set apart as sacred, consecrate, or to purify or free from sin. Come on, I want more sanctification in my life. I want God to sanctify me of the things that maybe I've stopped trying to sanctify myself with. Are you with me? This is what Jesus has done for you. He's made us holy. He set us apart as sacred, a chosen and royal priesthood. He's purified us and freed us from sin. Purity begins in the private place, in your private world. So I encourage you this morning, don't slip back. Don't slip back. So what does it mean to be holy? You must be holy. Well, how? How do we be holy? Well, first and foremost, allow the Word to wash you. The more you read the Word, the more it washes you. The things that you've built up in your mind or the things that you've started to believe that maybe aren't necessarily sins, that they, they might just be mistruths. And you're starting to give into a lesser version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you think, oh, well, no, that was just for that time or no, that doesn't happen anymore. And it's just not true. Let the Word of God wash over your mind. When you read it, let it inspire you, let it encourage you, let it correct you, guide you. And let it reveal to you the best way to live because you'll be benefited by that. When you read the Word of God, it actually pushes out the world, and it pushes out the lies that are starting to form a stronghold in your mind, because the Word comes in, and it washes you, but it also fills you up, and it pushes out what should not be there. It replaces it with goodness, and grace, and mercy, forgiveness, all the things that encourage us to keep on going. How do we be holy? How do we live holy? I'm going to finish with one more passage this morning. Matthew chapter 9. This is 9 to 13. It's when Jesus called Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Then later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other, love how the Bible puts it sometimes, disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I love this. Then he added, it's actually Matthew's the only one who puts this in. I love it. He added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. So we know what the Pharisees were all about. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I love the people Jesus chose to be his closest disciples. And I love that Matthew is one of them. I love that he chose a tax collector. 
Like of all the different professionals and trades that he could have chosen, he chose a tax collector. I love it because it would have meant something quite uh, large back then, but it still means something today as well, that he chose a tax collector to be one of his closest disciples, one of the 12. It's incredible. I love that. But I love the response of Matthew that we read here. He doesn't, he doesn't just feel so loved and cared for by Jesus. And so like, you can, can you imagine being a tax collector, like hated by everyone else around you? And then the latest rabbi to hit the streets walks on past and calls you a tax collector. Like Matthew was so blown away And I love what he does. He makes some statements with his actions. He doesn't just invite Jesus over later. He he puts on a banquet and then he invites all of the disciples. And then he just finds all of his tax collecting friends and a whole bunch of other disreputable sinner friends that he's got. And he invites them all over. over. By doing that, he's not hiding his faith. He's not hiding his relationship with Jesus, is he? He's doing the very opposite. And it made such a scene that even the Pharisees knew about this banquet. And they come and walk on by and poke their head in. And I love that. I love the impact that Jesus has on people's lives. Can we live like this? Can we respond to Jesus' love and salvation by inviting Jesus to our table? Can we honor him? Can we make a place for him in our lives, in our homes, in our hearts? Can we invite others to join us? Can we honor him with our lips and with our love? Can we make it known that we are Christians? And if they want to know the best of relationships ever with all the benefits of being a child of God, then as I imitate Christ, come and meet him for yourself. Jesus saved us and sanctified us. He set us free and he has set us apart. So let's live like Jesus lived. Can I get the band to come back up, please? If you want to attract Jesus, live holy. And if you want to be holy, live like Jesus. I want to say that again this morning. If you want to attract Jesus, live holy. And if you want to be holy, live like Jesus. He dined with sinners. And you and I have been called to do the same thing. We've been called to do what Jesus did, to follow him, to imitate him. Encourage you to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus dined with such scum, but he didn't partake of the lifestyle that they lived in. 